Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. This is Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 18. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but, they also, but that one they also beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I'll send my son, who I'm, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. Jesus looked directly at them and said, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Good afternoon, church. There we go, wonderful, wonderful. Has anybody started watching Christmas movies yet? Show of hands. It's not not acceptable yet, no. So I watched, ah, there we go, with two down the back, that's wonderful. So I, I watched my first Christmas movie last night. I may or may not have shed a tear at it. Has anybody seen the film uh, Nativity or The Nativity? Yeah, great movie. I think it was my first time watching it. Anyway, so the idea with with that film is the same as basically any other Christmas film and any film that's ever been made in the history of films. And it's essentially, you start off and all seems to be well and then all of a sudden there's a tragedy. Everything goes downhill. And it's like, oh man, we're only two minutes into this and the whole thing is... Uh, is, a, is a disaster, and then eventually they begin to build and build and build, build. And then there's a setback again, and then they build and build and build towards a climax at the end. Everything is wonderful, everyone is in love, there is a hero, there is a kiss at the end, and, and that's it. Today this sermon is not going to be that. Today this sermon is going to have a climax in it, yes, but it's going to be halfway through. So, um, so I, I want, want you to keep an eye out for, for the climax. So to this point, this is the seventh sermon in the series. We're finishing off our series in the kingdom of God and the upside down kingdom of God. And so Jesus is famous for teaching through parables. And essentially, remember, parables are these short stories that use everyday affairs to give the insight into the kingdom of God and into the character of God. But as in Luke's gospel, they're not so much just timeless truths, but they're actually a description of currently what's happening and then an invitation for the reader or the listener, the hearer, to step into it. Not just to step in and listen, but step in and participate. And so what's really interesting about Jesus' parables and Luke is that most of them occur as Jesus is on his way. Jesus is on his way somewhere. He is going somewhere. And so in this case, he's on his way to Jerusalem. Or, or sorry, in other cases, he was on his way to Jerusalem where he's going to die. And now for today's, he's actually in Jerusalem. And so for a number of occasions in Jesus is talking about being, or Luke is talking about Jesus being on his way, portraying, Je- entering Jesus' kingdom as Jesus being on a journey. 
And so instead of this, something being like classroom teaching, this is actually something you do and something you learn as you go along. And so for us, it's similar. Entering the kingdom of God isn't just some sort of classroom teaching or Sunday teaching. It's actually a journey that we go on as we walk through life. And so today we're invited to finishing uh, the parable by aligning ourselves with Jesus' kingdom as he walks along the road. So the, the back end story to Luke chapter 20. This is, this is key. Jesus arrives in Jerusalem in, in Luke's gospel. And so there, it is known as a triumphant entry. Jesus arrives riding on a donkey and he enters the temple courts to cleanse it. And before he goes into the temple courts, there's palm leaves put down. People are celebrating along, along the street and they're, and they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, which essentially means save or, or to save us. And so there is this, this procession, this parade, so to speak, as Jesus enters Jerusalem. He goes into the temple courts to cleanse the temple and he, and he fires the, the, the money changers' tables over the place. He essentially wrecks the show. And this isn't the, the meek and mild Jesus that we know. He absolutely wrecks it. The leaders want to kill him. And it's interesting, it's not because he flipped the tables, but it, it is because he was taking on an action that only they could do. Cleansing the temple was what was done this once a year uh, during Holy Week, during this week called Yom Kippur, the Jewish Holy Week, which had culminate in the celebration of the Passover. So at the end of the week, we've got the Passover, where at the start of the week, Jesus has entered Jerusalem, he's flipped over the money changers' tables, he's, he's driven out the people who were using the temple for business. It's absolute chaos. The scene was set. So it immediately leads to questions. Jesus gets questioned by these leaders about where his authority comes from. Like, how dare you do this, Jesus? Where does your authority come from? Who, who says that you can do this? And so refusing to answer their questions because of their refusal to be honest with him, Jesus in turn goes on to tell a parable. And so this Sunday we're going to talk about Jesus' kingdom authority and what that looks like in contrast to the world around him and the world around us. We're going to look at kingdom inheritance what might inheritance look like to the everyday follower of Jesus in Dublin? And we'll look at kingdom allegiance. You know, we've all got to do with, well, we've all got to do something with Jesus. Everybody has to make up their mind about Jesus at some stage in their lives. And so as Jesus is telling this parable, he's relying on, on basic Old Testament themes, and, by, and he alters this theme. And by doing so, Jesus warns the nation about their perilous position. And so Jesus is answering the religious leaders' questioning regarding his authority with this parable. And so Jesus actually uses uh, imagery from Isaiah chapter 5. And so in Isaiah 5, God pronounces judgment against Israel. And the vineyard in this case is Israel. And so now Jesus goes and he takes this, this Isaiah 5 imagery he takes this scripture and he develops a new parable with some subtle differences. And so in this case, it's likely that the vineyard in question is God's promise, his covenant with his people, while the tenants refers to Israel as specifically represented by the leadership, by the people that Jesus is speaking to, the chief priests, the Pharisees, the, the teachers of the law. <coughs> and so in this, in this case, we will see that that the issue here isn't against the vineyard, isn't, isn't against the country, the nation, but it's actually against the workers or, or the leaders. So the parable in the picture is a common one. It wasn't unusual in Palestine. Is, is safe here? 
Are we safe? We don't have safe. Our Palestinian friend, he is a, he's a farmer, he would know this. So the, the picture isn't an uncommon one in the sense that in Palestine it was, it was popular for land to be owned by somebody but yet farmed by somebody else. And when the vineyard is planted, the farmer expects to get a return on the crops as normal. And even if the, the farmer's absence is long, sooner or later, he expects the land to be profitable. And so when harvest time comes, the owner sends his servants to go and collect the proceeds from the vineyard. And if you, if you look at the scripture, he sends, he sends three sets of servants to begin with. Look at what happens to all three of them. Look at the first one. The very first one, the tenant beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So the first servant was beaten. And if you look at the second one, he sent another servant. So they, they beat him and treated him shamefully and sent him away. So we've got a bit of a progression here. The first one was beaten, the second one was beaten and shamed. And then look at the third one here. He sent still a third and they wounded him and threw him out. So we've got a servant that was beaten, the next servant was beaten and shamed, and the third was wounded and cast out. There's a, there's a progression of seriousness here. The details, the details are so key. The details portray the persistent unfaithfulness of the nation and their leaders and their lack of response to the prophets. If you think about it, God sent Moses. Moses wrote the law and so they had their, their Torah, their Old Testament, essentially their half a Bible, where you've got the law and the prophets, you've got the wisdom writings, you've Psalms. And so you've got all of this. And, and, and the Lord gave Israel all of this. And time and time again, Israel rebelled and rebelled and they didn't accept it. They rejected the prophets, prophet after prophet, until there was a one to come. And so we are at a stage here now in which in which the, the prophets have been rejected. And Jesus is saying that, you know, the servants have been sent. One was beaten, one was beaten and wounded, and the, the next was wounded and cast out. There's a serious progression. You know, I love this next bit. Then the owner of the vineyard says, what shall I do? What will I do? I will send my son who whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said, let's kill him. So it's mad. The tenants actually had to ask the same question. They had to actually answer the same question as well. What will I do? This is the heir. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. I don't know. That's absolute mad. That's mental. You know, Jesus' actions when he came to Jerusalem were absolutely outrageous. Jesus was outrageous. His actions were provocative. And so Jesus was at a stage where he was only a few days away from death, where the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the, the chief priests, and they make up this, this thing called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were out to get Jesus. And from this time onwards, Jesus is only safe from the authorities when he's been protected by his extraordinary popularity. Jesus was safe in numbers. And you know, the first public response from the temple leaders is interesting. So they make up the, the Sanhedrin, this group of people, and they wanted to know what, what authority Jesus presumed to have to do these things. And we've seen the progression in the parable. We've seen what Jesus has been saying. The, the servants are beaten, beaten and wounded and shamed. And now the owner, the owner here has the right to do... Uh, 
justice. The owner has the right to, to, to get a, a military guard, to, to get um, maybe a personnel to come in, uh, some private contractors, and, and absolutely storm the vineyard, arrest the tenants, maybe wound them, who knows what. The owner of the vineyard has the right to do all of this. But we don't see it, do we? If we look at scripture, we don't see it. In fact, anger and rage are to be assumed at this point. The embarrassment, the shame, the, the absolute rage at, at, your, um, at, at your employees, at, at the people that, that, that you love, that you pay, would, would get treated so badly. But we don't see it. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, what will the owner of the vineyard do with the anger that's generated by the injustice that he and his servants have suffered? And this is the climax. This is, this is literally the pinnacle. Don't fall asleep after this, but this is the pinnacle of the story. To the reader's total surprise, the son is sent to the vineyard alone and unarmed. And so with the recollections of the humiliation and the suffering that the servants have experienced fresh in the owner's mind, the noble owner decides to send his beloved son. Decides to send his beloved son. The vineyard's owner's hope is that the violent men in the vineyard will sense the indescribable nobility of the owner who sends his beloved son alone to them. You know, the story actually implies that the renters, uh, if, if they will accept the authority of the son then, and pay the rent, then everything will be okay. That'll be issue resolved. If the renters accept the son, pay the rent, all will be well, all will be forgiven. And the owner here is acting out of unspeakable nobility. And he risks it all in the hope that his total vulnerability will awaken a long-forgotten sense of honor in the hearts of the renters. His servants have been beaten, they've been wounded, and even yet the owner is willing to take risk for a greater loss. And so the climax of the story isn't at the end, but it's here. The climax is a total vulnerability of the, of, of the father, of the vineyard owner that demands the costly, self-emptying love. The owner asks the question, what will I do? And you know, it's, it's like an incredible return serve by Roger Federer. The ball is now back in the court of the tenants and they have to ask themselves, what will I do as well? Verses 14 and 15 say, but when the tenants saw them, they talked the matter over, this is the heir. They said, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out into the vineyard and they killed him. This is Jesus' autobiography. It's literally as if Jesus is sitting down and writing his own autobiography. God's rebellious people didn't listen to Moses. They didn't listen to the law. Didn't listen to the prophets. Didn't listen to the ones who went before him. The parallels are striking. The Sanhedrin get it. They see it. So God sends his beloved son and Jesus and now he too has been rejected and he's only a few days away from being crucified on the cross. The total vulnerability of the father is the climax, the center point. The one who had all authority chose not to act on it. And rather than taking up his authority, he gave it away. And this is the nature of the upside down kingdom of God. God in his great mercy gave up his authority and that he permitted Jesus, his beloved son, to go to the renters, to us, and yet we put him to death. You know, the vineyard owner doesn't respond in violence or in force, but in grace. Listen to these words from, uh, from Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8. 
in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Well, what does kingdom authority look like? It looks like the giving away of power when power is to be assumed. It looks like forgiveness when retaliation is justified. It looks like preferring the other person, serving for the benefit of others, even when we have nothing to gain ourselves. It looks like the giving of oneself for something even greater. You know, in society today, gaining and, and taking authority is seen as a virtue, as a, as a stepping stone, as a helpful means for elevation, whether that's in business or relationships. Yet Jesus demonstrates that the economy of heaven is somewhat different. And this upside down kingdom of God runs counter to the ebbs and flows of society. And essentially Jesus is encouraging us to come under the rule and reign of a different king. You know, kingdom authority is not taking, but it's a giving away. And kingdom inheritance. So now to this point, we, we know the owner decides to send a son. We, we see that the that the, the, the owner, the father, is willing to, to, to give up this authority. He decides to send the son, and, and we recognize the total vulnerability on the, on the part of the owner. But let's look at the response of the tenants. This is the heir, they said. Again, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. If somebody knows how killing the, the son is going to ensure that the inheritance goes to the renters, then please tell me, for this is beyond me. It is to be assumed that, that this is the only son and so since they expect uh, his death to lead them to be given the land, it, we're kind of asking ourselves, what on earth is going on? Barring any breach of relationship, barring any breach of relationship, it wasn't unusual for land to be given to renters if no heirs existed. But their logic was so skewed. Killing the heir is going to breach the relationship. It's literally going to cut the ties. It's like saying something abusive to your mother-in-law. There's no way back from that. It was funny. If we kill the heir, we become the heirs. How will killing the heir reap benefits for them? It shows how twisted sinful thinking can be. It shows how easy we can justify the unjustifiable. You know, blindness can see strange things in the dark. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I used to run from my next door neighbor's house up to my house. It's about 200 yards. I used to walk or run up in the darkness. I could run at a serious pace whenever it was dark because I could see things that weren't really there. Blindness can see strange things in the dark. You know, the renters forgot that they were renters and they presumed themselves to be owners. And this mightn't mean much to us, but Jesus is expressing a conflict in his relationship with the Sanhedrin, the temple leadership. Jesus was more interested in the movement than the monument. Luke begins a section by describing how Jesus came into the temple to clean it and the Sanhedrin's inheritance is their control over the temple, their control over the institution, their control over the buildings, over the practices, their control over the money changers and the businesses going on within the temple. The Sanhedrin were essentially trying to control all the physical. But yet Jesus disrupts this. Tossing the money changers' tables aside, driving out those who were se selling. And he, and he says, in my, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. 
And so it soon became clear that the Jewish leaders were not prepared to let it be cleansed in the way that Jesus wanted it to be cleansed. It was their cherished system of faith and cherished system of life. And they wouldn't let it go. But on the other hand, Jesus wouldn't let it remain. So it's a, it's a case, it's a classic case of Jesus versus the unrepentant Judaism. You know, in John 4, Jesus says some incredible things to the Samaritan woman. And he says that there is coming a time when you will not need to worship in Jerusalem or on this mount or on this, in Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim. Location is no longer important, but worship will be in spirit and in truth. The kingdom that Jesus was inaugurating wasn't constrained to a particular place or a particular time or in a particular way, but it was one where what was internal, not external, was of ultimate significance. Do you get it? What was internal, not external, was of ultimate significance. You know, Jesus was envisioning a day in which worship wasn't constrained to a building, but was within the hearts and lives of his followers. You know, Jesus rises up against the religious establishment in this, in this parable. The Sanhedrin are totally concerned for the immediate inheritance, the control of the temple, the control of the physical. But the kingdom of God, or, or the inheritance, is the new world in which God reigns alone and supreme. And that guy's a danger for us today. The temptation that is so real and so easy for us. You know, it'd be so easy for me to say, but that's what the Sanhedrin were like. That's what the religious people were like. That's not us. The reality is, this is so easy for us to, to fall into that. You know, the danger, the temptation for us is to take our eyes off Jesus and place them onto our man-made structures, place them onto our things, place them onto our church place them onto our, our Bible readings, place them onto our fancy, fancy Instagram post with our Bible and our coffee and everything neat, place them onto our, our things that we do for God. You know, these things can be so subtle and so well-intentioned, moving our hearts from devotion to Jesus to duty for Jesus, moving our desires from all for Jesus to all for me. Moving our priorities from dependence upon Jesus to dependence upon our wealth, upon our own means. Moving our weight from God's grace, whereas God's grace that has saved and sustained me and see me through, to your own efforts. I need to do this. I need to do this. If only I can do this and everything will be fine. You know, it can be so small and so subtle. Inheritance in the kingdom of God is not what we work for, but what we live out of because of what Jesus has already achieved for us. That should literally take a weight off our shoulders. Inheritance in the, in the kingdom of God is not what we work for, but what we live out of, because of what Jesus has already achieved. Jesus has demonstrated what kingdom authority and kingdom inheritance looks like. And as we come to a close, we're going to see what kingdom allegiance looks like. And this is where we have got a couple of questions that we need to answer. You know, the story doesn't stop here. The vineyard owner will return at last. And when he, when he does, he'll exact judgment upon the tenants and he'll give the, give the vineyard to others. And so when they heard this, they were aghast. Look at verse 15. So they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when the people heard this, they said, God forbid. 
I wonder what they'd say if they were Irish. The response is surely not. They're horrified, absolutely horrified at the idea that God is going to extend his blessings not just to, to these, these people, not just to Israel, but to other people. And that the kingdom is going to be taken from these people and given to others. The religious leaders are like, surely not. We are off Abraham. We are the chosen people. No way could God do this. They're horrified at the idea that God's blessing is going to be extended to, to Gentiles, to other people who were not God's chosen people before. And so Jesus then goes into another parable, and it's a really short one. And that parable is found in Psalm 118. If you want to look at the text here in, in Luke 20, verses 17 and 18, we see this other parable. You know, the, the, the parable is, is different, though, because it wouldn't fit in the context of a vineyard, but instead it would fit perfectly in a builder's, in a builder's yard. Jesus looked directly at them and he asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Imagine a builder's yard full of stone and ready for a new build. The workers are sorting the lumps of granite and the marble into different sizes and different shapes so they can haul them up to their places on the walls. But there's one stone that doesn't belong anywhere. It simply doesn't fit. And so they set it aside, expecting to throw it out whenever the job is done. But when they've almost finished, they discover that they need a stone of a particular shape for the very last piece to round off the top of a corner. This is a stone that they rejected earlier. It wouldn't fit anywhere else, but it will fit here. Back a few years ago, I had, a, I had an old car and the engine blew up on it. So I ended up buying another engine and I was too tight to pay a mechanic to change the engine. And so I had a little bit of space in my dad's shed, so I put the car there. And so I went to go about changing the engine myself. And it's the same with anything. If you fail to prepare, you, you'll prepare to fail. And so I, I got, got myself a little spreadsheet and I wrote down all the different, different bits and pieces that I needed, split it into different sections, and I had boxes, and I had different bags for different nuts and bolts, and so I began to set about changing this engine. Anyway, cut a long story short, a couple of days later, got the engine in, lots of cuts in the hands and arms, lots of blood, some swearing, it wasn't all wholesome. <laughs> Finished it off, and now I have a box with a lot of bolts and bits and pieces left over that were not there to begin with. And all I know is that they should be in there, but they're not. If the engine runs, that is all well and good, but what then happens because these bolts are not here? Why that passage? Why this particular response? You know, Psalm 118 is a series of striking features that appeared in the triumphal entry only a day or two before. So can you imagine this? Jesus is, is, is chatting here. He's teaching He's saying to these temple leaders, and he goes now and tells a parable, a small parable of something that is so real because it just happened two, two days before, maybe even the day before. Psalm 118 speaks of a procession going up to and through the gates of the temple. It speaks of the cry of the people saying what? Saying, Hosanna. There is the affirmation that blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There is a carrying of, of branches and the procession. Guys, all these things happened only the day before as Jesus went up through the gates 
there is a crowd of people saying and shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. And they're blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're, they're waving palm branches. They're doing all these things. They're fulfilling prophecy. But within this psalm, there is a striking, striking line that said, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. For Jesus to quote this verse, he drives home his point. The worker, the worker may reject Jesus now, but they will find that he will be vindicated. He will be seen as a true Messiah. He will build a true temple and he himself will be the chief feature. The parable shows how most of Israel rejected Jesus as God's beloved son. And so if this is what's happened to Jesus when he came into Jerusalem, then guys, what should we expect when his followers today go to places of power and places of injustice? What should we expect in Dublin City? What reaction will the gospel receive in places where religion was once used as a means of control, where religion was once used as a means of reinforcing security, instead of shining a light into God's world? There's so, so many parallels here in the, in the Jerusalem that Jesus walked into and the Dublin that we currently reside in. <coughs> Guys, it may well mean rejection. It may well mean alienation. It may well mean persecution for what you stand for. And so if so, then you are in good company. And you can rest assured that you'll have the underground church in China praying for you. You'll have encouragement from the Christians in war-torn countries in Africa and in the Middle East, from the Christians who pledge allegiance to King Jesus, no matter what the cost is. Guys, as we close up our series, we've witnessed a number of parables in Luke that are left open for the hearer. We've heard it week in and week out. Some of these parables are left open for us to step into and participate. This one's different. This parable is fully closed. It is not left open. Jesus has a final word. This parable is not left open. The vineyard owner will have the final word. He will have the final word. Tertullian, one of the early church fathers in the second century, he coined the phrase, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You know, what happened to Jesus was not just an example of what always happens, but instead it was the decisive victory. Guys, from here onwards, Jesus' followers goes on mission, not to try and win a victory, but to declare that Jesus has already triumphed, to live out that, that, that victory, to live out that victorious life, to declare that the battle has already been won, to proclaim Jesus' victory over the cross, over the grave, over death itself. You know, Jesus finishes by saying in verse 18, everyone who falls on that stone will be crushed, will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Those who do not accept Jesus will eventually be broken by him. What each of us do with Jesus will reverberate in all of eternity. Like the owner who asked the question, what then shall I do? Like the tenants who had to ask that same question, what then shall we do? Today, Christ City Church, we have to ask that very same question, what then shall we do? What will we do with Jesus? What we do know is that the vineyard owner will return and have the final word. What we do know is that Jesus is alive and he is our king. So what then shall we do? Guys, we're, we're like four weeks out from, from Christmas. We're four weeks out from celebrating the birth of Jesus. That is insanely wonderful. 
in saying that, it scares me to pieces knowing I haven't started my Christmas shopping. But what we cannot do is separate the death of Jesus with the birth of Jesus. The death of Jesus should not just be kept for Easter, and the birth of Jesus should not just be kept for Christmas. You know, what we see here today is, a, is, is an owner, a father, who sends his son, perhaps, perhaps that they will accept him. Perhaps they will respect him. Guys, we should allow this, this parable to cause our eyes to turn to the cross, but also to the, to the birth of Jesus. Guys, we cannot separate the birth of Jesus and the death of Jesus. Do you know why? Because the birth of Jesus shows that God sent his son into the world to take our place. And the death of Jesus cements that. And the resurrection of Jesus affirms that. And it gives us that assurance that one day we will be, we will be risen as well. One day we get to go where Jesus is. Can I just invite the worship team back up? I don't know where you stand with Jesus today. Whether you follow him wholeheartedly whether you've kind of got one foot in, uh, into Jesus and one foot in the world, or maybe, maybe you're just not interested at all, or maybe you're on that journey. You know, we're all on the journey. And while the parable is closed, while, while we know that the vineyard owner will return and have the final word, we live in the overlap where Jesus came and we know he has come and he will come back. We live in that overlap. We live in that gap. And I want to encourage you today, if you don't know Jesus, and it is not too late. You know, Jesus went to the cross for your sin and for my sin so that we could accept him and have eternal life. You know, if you want to accept this free gift that Jesus offers, then there will be a couple of us up at the front afterwards. We would love to pray with you. We'd love to chat with you. And you know, if, if you're thinking about it and you're not too sure, then you know what? Come to the pub. Come back next Sunday. Come and join us on this journey. You know, we are a church of people who are broken. We are not perfect people. We do not claim to be. We never were and we never will be. But we are on a journey pursuing Jesus. And if this is something that you want to actually start on or begin to take another step on, then you are so welcome to it. Uh, will you stand with me as I pray? Jesus, we thank you that, uh, that you inaugurated your kingdom here on earth. And we thank you for those that accept you and follow you, that you've given us that deposit on our hearts to carry. I thank you, Jesus, that we can be kingdom carriers. Jesus, may we be a people that do not um, try to be authoritative, that do not try to, 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 to stamp our authority on people, but may we be a people that are willing to, to give up authority. May we be a people that are willing to prefer the other person. May we be a people who are willing to give away. May we be a people, Jesus, who lives counterculturally in Dublin. And may the city see it. May they begin to ask questions. Father, I, I pray that our, our inheritance would be one not of temples and buildings. Our inheritance would not be one of, um, of, of what we have done or what we have achieved. But our inheritance would be you and you alone, Jesus. That you would be enough for us. And so, Jesus, may our allegiance be, be to you and you alone. May the upside-down kingdom of God actually, in our lives, be the right way up. May we have eyes, Jesus, that would see 
your kingdom of God is the right way up. And as we look at the world, we would see that it's upside down, that the world is actually broken, that there are problems in the world that can only be satisfied in and through you. Jesus, I, I, I pray that, that you would really just burden hearts today. Within these weeks leading up to Christmas, you would burden people. That you would burden people with, with the desire to come to you. We thank you, Jesus, that, that now that we know that you are that son who was sent for us, we are not going to be punished, but we actually can come to the Father with open arms. So Jesus, we, we approach you today. We approach you this Christmas and we worship you for who you are and for what you have done, Jesus. Amen.